This is Family Law Matters, a podcast series that introduces you to mental health and legal professionals in the area of family law. We'll be talking to experts who guide moms, dads, and children along transitions of separation and divorce. My name is Janine Crofton, the principal at Resolveology, Inc. I'm a family law mediator in Alberta and a psychologist in Alberta and Ontario. My hope is to provide information and a bit of optimism to listeners who are in the midst of restructuring their families. Before we begin, just a quick reminder that information heard on this podcast is not to be construed as psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a professional concerning your specific circumstances. On this second episode, we are interviewing a Calgary psychologist, Mike Dennis. Mike offers therapy to children, youth, and adults, and also provides forensic services in the family law area. Before becoming a psychologist, Mike offered mediation services at the law courts in Calgary, helping many couples to form agreements, allowing them to avoid family court. See a complete bio for Mike on my website at resolveology.com. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. Why did you decide to become a psychologist? It's a good question, actually. So I, when I started out, actually, my journey, if you want to say, I actually wanted to be a police officer. So, so before I got my psychology degree, I have a degree in criminology as well. So I was actually a criminologist before I was a psychologist. So at the time that I was going to school, um, the first profiler show came on, which was probably in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And I don't know if people remember it, but that made me want to be a criminal profiler, which is probably something that almost every psychologist kind of goes through or every police officer goes through. So uh, I started taking psych courses and ended up doing two degrees, which is second crim degrees. So uh, I had planned actually on just kind of going through and doing just being a psychologist, but I got sidetracked with life and uh, became a divorce negotiator, as you would know, because we worked together. And then uh, I had this somewhat epiphanous conversation with one of my, let's say, more experienced colleagues. And uh, I was caseful coordinator at the time, and I was kind of snowed in on files and sort of being worked quite hard, as happens at the government. And she asked, well, why don't I just become a psychologist or move on and do something else? And and. I had said that, well, that would be like four years and, and a whole bunch of money uh, away. And she asked the pivotal question, well, what do you think you'll be doing in four years if you don't do anything? So the next day I applied for my master's and went to UFC and sort of here I am. Nice. So you have a master's in what? I, I have a master's in education counseling. And so how long have you been practicing? About six years. I think I just had my sixth, possibly seventh birthday, so in terms of being registered on in June. And uh, you do a lot of things, like you worked for Woods Homes, and you've worked with kids a lot, you also do forensic work, so can you tell me sort of about the breadth of work that you do in the family law site sort of industry? So for family law, um, I didn't know it was actually going to come back to me a little bit in terms of assessments and stuff, but yes, you brought up Woods Homes, so I worked for the Phoenix program, which was... Um, working with uh, youth who had committed um, improper acts against other people uh, in terms of sexual nature. So started out kind of doing that and getting experience that way. And then once I was done my master's, I, I 
started doing suicide and homicide assessments for the hospitals, so part of a mobile response team up in Edmonton. Um, and then a few years later, uh, continued to work for Alberta Health Services, doing a lot of assessments, and then in terms of short-term kind of really high-risk assessments. And then I moved into the addiction center, and we started doing addiction assessments and mental health assessments and, and completing those and completing sort of assessment devices to be able to streamline them. So that said, that's more of sort of the clinical nature and the assessment nature. And then um, I worked for uh, an organization that specializes with personality disorders and got trained in DBT therapy. So uh, and really t- treating and helping treat some of the people that I did assessments with. So people who would cut people high risk, people high risk of suicide, meth fairly substantial behavioral issues. And, and from there, if you can sort of do that therapy, you there's there's other therapies that sort of fall within your paradigm, like anxiety and depression and eating disorders and, and those pieces. So, so the first part of the for, being a forensic psychologist, I do actually believe is a fairly strong clinical piece. So then, or that's sort of a sort of its own timeline, as you said. So the other, the other train track was that I was a divorce negotiator for about eight years for family justice. So started out being a court counselor and then was a caseful coordinator with yourself. Um, and what we would do is we, we would negotiate ad hoc, started out in the hallways, negotiating separations and anything to do with children uh, in provincial court uh, to be able to present to the judge any kind of agreements to streamline the process. And then uh, uh, judge and I, one of the assistant chief judges, helped create a caseful conference program to streamline sort of the government's system a little bit more and, and really start to develop orders and to be able to um, process interim agreements without having to go into the courts so that we can do everything uh, on an interim basis in the most streamlined way possible. So you take those two experiences and put them together and you kind of have a forensic psychologist. So Nice. And so if you were to sort of say who your typical client is, who would your typical client be? I don't know if there is a typical. So because I specialized, when I came out of school, I specialized with youth, so 12 to 24-year-olds. Um, I still have a lot of experience and get a lot of referrals for those types of individuals, either high-risk sort of situations or some issues in school. Or Most clients have an issue in a relationship that happens and then they want to come in to be able to either fix it or to be able to fix themselves after after the relationship breakdown. So the clients, clinically speaking, are quite intense youth or as I've been progressing in private practice, more and more adults have been coming in. So I guess you can't say I specialize anymore in a way because I deal with people from 12 to 20, about 55. Uh, but my focus and sort of my heart still is with those 12 to 24-year-olds. But forensic setting is anybody who is either separating or post-separation that has to do with children. So that would be parent coordination. That would be, can you give me a list of sort of services that you provide? Yeah. So in terms of, in terms of forensic settings, so uh, I do parent coordination. So anything that has, that's been listed on the practice note seven. So any kind of intervention or evaluation, I'll do that. So there's a, there's a fair amount there. The most famous ones are sort of voices of child reports, parent-child reunification therapy or parenting coordination. So I also do unilateral uh, mental health assessments, sometimes under practice of seven, but sometimes on their own. So, and then uh, offer services to lawyers, 
and some clients actually who are struggling with the process if they're self-repped or so self-represented or they're struggling sometimes with their lawyers or their lawyers are struggling with their clients and I'll offer a, I'll offer a, a litigation support to be able to help either bridge gaps or give lawyers or clients a little bit more time to be able to process their case and develop a strategy for it. Well, good. That's uh, that's good information and I certainly know I hear from a lot of my clients who have children that see you, that uh, that you do really good work. So I keep referring to you. Thank uh, you. So tell me, what do you think uh, is, how is it that you're so good at connecting with youth? Because that's what I hear about you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. I don't know. I think they trained us in school to be able to say right off the bat in an interview what your, what your treatment paradigm is. So although treatment paradigm is kind of a sort of loosey-goosey term. So I guess even me just identifying that, I uh, my paradigm is I'm a reality therapist, which means I shoot from the hip and I just sort of tell people what's, what's going on and try to be as polite and respectful by doing it. Youth, typically, because I don't I don't have sort of a, I wouldn't say maybe condescending manner or a real sort of typical psychologist approach kind of manner to me. So they like the real, the real base and they, they like that they don't have to anticipate what it is that I'm going to be saying and that I'll, I'll talk to them as if they're my level. So I find that they like that the most. And then, and we have lots of fun. So I, my background is, is, a, is an athlete. So a lot of kids like that. So often Kids will describe me as a surfer in a suit, so I try to let go of some of the psychologist stereotypes and just be real. And so when you think about your involvement with the family law work, what do you find the most satisfying? It is a lot of work, but there are certain areas that are really gratifying. Obviously, it's nice to get compliments. Um, it is extremely nice to get a compliment, especially in a parenting coordination area where parents come to an agreement, they've come to the end of their contract, you get the typical, Mike, it's nice, but I never want to see you again, and thank you, <laughs> because I don't have to, um, sort of typical sort of approach to saying goodbye, to know that, you know, in, in those settings, you know that you actually helped to for the children, so... The idea of becoming a psychologist from from the government was we used to inadvertently help children or help children through their parents. So in the psychologist position, you actually get to help the children directly. So through parents, sometimes through parenting coordination, but often you can, you can see the kids anyway, or just directly. And either a youth makes a, a right decision about a tolerance break or about what university they want to go to, or they just have better communication with their parents or it's something more sensational with the higher risk clients where people start to dig back into living and, and putting together a life that they want and a life for them that they would like to live. And so what is the role of a parent coordinator? The history of it is it, it came out of uh, California a number of years ago. And the idea of it is to be able to provide a specialized service to parents that offers the ability to, for one professional to be able to get to know the family over an extended period of time. The suggestion is a one or two year contract with the parents where the parents cannot unilaterally fire the professional just in case there's a disagreement or a dispute. The parenting coordinator, the definition generally is supposed to be that the parenting coordinator is a highly experienced mediator. 
So with the experience in mediation, what we rely on is the ability to be able to actually mediate most disputes. So the disputes would range from smaller sort of Halloween type items to often a majority of custody or major decision-making disputes, but would be capped at anything that would change dramatically any kind of custody or any kind of mobility. So the parenting coordinator either could enforce or mediate already existing orders or create parenting plans on their own. So sounds a lot like mediation with contract, except a parenting coordinator also has the authority through the parents' consent to be able to arbitrate any matters that the parents can't agree to. The idea of the arbitration is to be able to speed up the process and minimize the amount of money spent by parents to be able to get decisions on those not as significant matters. So not in terms of custody and 50-50 versus every other weekend type style of disputes or mobility disputes, but what are we going to do for Halloween? What are we going to do for Christmas? What are we going to do on the children's birthdays and the parents' birthdays? Those matters clog the courts. In terms of the courts, they don't want to see that kind of volume. But in terms of parents, it costs a lot of money to have your lawyers be involved in those types of disputes. So parenting coordination is an alternate dispute resolution avenue for that. And so we know that, you know, through the mediation work that you and I have done, that parents often get uh, sort of stuck in those situations where they, you know, one thing after the next seems to sort of build until they have this lot of of resentments towards one another based on their co-parenting relationship. And so it sounds to me like the parent coordination role really helps to sort of clean out some of those conflicts so that parents can get on with the, the best decisions that they can make. Yes. Yeah, the idea... The, the initial idea is to help with communication. So in my experience, often cleaning up some of those issues to be able to move over, to be able to communicate more effectively, it, it seems to be the, the way that the, the cookie falls in that one because the issues that the parents come in with originally, they've already disputed for a number of months, years sometimes, and need to be resolved before they can before they can grieve that issue or sort of bury that issue and move on to trying to figure out how to parent together as parents and and communicate as parents. So when you're um, sitting in the role, not of a formal assessor and not in the role of a parenting coordination, but strictly in a counseling role, what do you think the impact is of parents or kids seeing a psychologist as they walk through the process of family law? So, well, the idea is uh, the hope is that parents feel extremely well supported in terms of being able to move to it through what's most commonly is a feeling of rejection or a feeling of betrayal or guilt around the separation of a family and then being also able to process their feelings in conjunction with those ones that I just talked about with the grief around the separation of the family. So families are doing that. So a family is, has their own grief process but individuals going through this process also have their own sort of pieces that they're trying to get through and, and hopefully are being supported to be able to go to, to recover from. Then they have the added sort of components and complexities of, of the legal system. So for most parents, it's the first separation they've ever been to. So, I mean, if, if you ask if we, didn't, we weren't experienced in what we knew, and let's say we were accountants and I needed an accountant, 
the abilities for me to be able to find one if I didn't have any friends who were accountants and I just looked at the yellow pages or Google, it'd be very difficult to be able to have any confidence in any professionals that were around. So the idea is that we're trying to provide support through somewhat of a naive situation because the parents have never been in this process before, as well as guidance to be able to figure out their emotions while they're trying to figure out logical solutions for their kids. And so when you think about, you know, what a good outcome is for you when you see if you're in a clinical sense and you're seeing a couple going through a separation and there's lots lots of big feelings and there's hurts and they're having a hard time co-parenting. And let's just say you're seeing one of them. What do you think is the main goal that you have for those parents? My main goal is to improve communication, but to be able to improve that one parent's ability to communicate, often we have to get through some of the difficulties or often power imbalances that occurred in the relationship and heal some of the effects of those. So some people are in a more power position and often don't understand what it is that's happening and and why the other parent is recoiling and not communicating about why they're recoiling, which would mean using the silent treatment in a way or just not responding because the one parent is just being too fervent in, in their in their want and, mm-hmm. and demonstration for communication. And then on the other side of the other parent where, you know, they often there's an inability or a difficulty in trying to actually establish or to maintain a boundary or a limit to be able to create some kind of structure around communication. So the ultimate goal is for parents to be able to communicate together better. The ultimate goal for parents, honestly, is for them to be able to communicate better as well. So moving into what the dynamic of why that's not occurring gets a little bit more muddy and generally is more of an individually based sort of process to be able to build parents up or give parents clarity about what they're doing that maybe they shouldn't be doing. So, Mike, one of the things that separates psychologists from sort of other people in the world is that we have expertise in trauma and treating trauma. And so where do you find trauma shows up most in the family law industry and in this area? That's that's an excellent question. So I think, speaking with lawyers, lawyers will often say to me that, you know, they they would like to have some involvement or my involvement to be able to help deal with some of the, the, the bigger emotions are sort of how they would term it for parents to be able to sort of not only regulate, but they have people in their offices where they just feel equipped to be able to deal with what you're talking about, which is the trauma of the relationship. So in terms of trauma, it's all, you, could relate, you could relate the trauma of family law or of family separations to little t and big t trauma. So most parents are worried about their children in terms of little t traumas. Are they coping okay? Little Jane is is coping well, and I can see that she's doing okay in in uh, school, and she's talking to me, so that's okay. Our little Johnny's not saying anything, and he's always been the one who stuffs his emotions. So big worry there. So in terms of that, a separation is a hallmark sort of moment for uh, a child's attachment, especially if uh, there isn't communication or if there's a fair amount of difficulty and conflict in a relationship. So parents are actually right to be able to be worried about their, their children that way. And and frankly, if they're starting to worry about the support system that they're able to put in play, then I would end up seeing children and that would be in the context of what you're asking in terms of little t trauma. So 
are they doing okay? Let's do a sort of more of a mini treatment assessment for them. Let's make sure that they have their voices heard and by someone who has the ability to be able to temper out the, the connection between voice and choice. And then we'll figure out a strategy to be able to relay it to the children, to the parents in a safe manner. So for parents, most of the trauma that I see is around betrayal. So around a, a really acute nature of mistrust or an event that happens where a parent can no longer trust the other parent. And the way that human beings work is we develop emotional trust. We generally don't develop parenting trust for other parents. So as soon as we, when we destroy the emotional trust, then that is traumatic, first of all, for a parent to be able to, to experience that, that level of betrayal, whether or not it's um, depending on the circumstances around it, or just a level of rejection that occurs. The leaving parent or the parent who's deciding to leave the relationship, I don't know if I, little t trauma as well, the, the, I don't want to get into the definition of trauma and what's used in, or overused and whatever in terms of semantic nature of it, but it is traumatic for parents. So there's a number of things that they're, they're dealing with, which is the separating actually of the kids. What if a child isn't doing very well? That was their decision making to be able to do that. Often parents will lose the facts of what it was that they're separating for in the beginning because the separation often doesn't go very well and moves towards a, a high conflict nature and, and they feel responsible for that. So there's some shame and guilt there. So those are the parents kind of, and in terms of like the children. So the big T trauma is what we're, you know, the, the government is scared of. There's new provisions in the Divorce Act to be able to, to do domestic violence screening. Every, every therapist I know, especially forensic psychologists, are extremely worried about missing or not or disadvantaging any parent or, or person in their sessions or in the system of making anybody more vulnerable. So without going into too much statistics in its own its own presentation on its own in terms of trauma, because it's a massive issue and a, and a massive topic to be able to talk about that, that thank you for asking, because should be should be transparently spoken about. So Alberta has some difficulties in terms of domestic violence, and so does Canada and probably the, the world. And there's we're trying to make it uh, triaged, transparent, and in the forefront with professional training for everybody involved to be able to at least speak about it and give someone the opportunity to talk about it. It's a big issue. Parents deal with it and children deal with it in their own ways. And hopefully everybody has the opportunity to be able to speak to someone or to get some help, especially if there is the T value there, that trauma, whether or not it's big or little, or regardless of what someone's definition of just emotionally hurt and dysregulated is. Yeah, so we know that there are many programs across Canada and specifically in Alberta about managing high conflict between parents. And so you used to teach parenting after separation, which was a, a longstanding in-person uh, course that was taught to all parents who were proceeding uh, in the courts. And it's since gone online. And when you think about what kinds of things parents need to know about kids who are going through separation and divorce, what comes to mind? Well, the, the most important pieces, I mean, it, it, it was highlighted in parenting after separation for sure. Um, however, the most important pieces is that the children actually need to know that the parents are still there to be able to put them first. So if the children start to doubt that, they start actually making decisions on their own and they start to be putting themselves first to be able to meet their own needs, which means they're effectively parenting themselves. So children, youth, young adults, somewhat, have a really hard time parenting themselves. 
So that would be the one of the bigger pieces. Another avenue is that if it is all at all possible, and if the parent or if the children have the ability to be able to see parents getting along and getting along, even if parents don't get along at all, but getting along for the children in front of the children, as fake as you might think it is. And I hear lots of parents say, I'm not going to be fake in front of my children. They need to see the real thing. They don't. Mm -hmm. They need to see parents attempting to get along so that they know that their parents can emotionally regulate in front of the kids, in front of them. You're not actually teaching a whole bunch about how to teach the other parent. You're actually teaching the children that they're special enough that the parents will hold it together when the children already know that the parents don't like each other. That is a, a, a massive uh, modeling for the children and for them to realize what I had said first for the, not for number one is that the parents will put them first and the kids are that special, even in this relationship where they can, they can continue to feel grounded because the parents can do what the children probably think are, is impossible and parents think is impossible. You just have to act it sometimes. Those would be the two biggest pieces that I see. Right. So, you know, those programs, I think, were put into place based on the fact that we know that children seeing high degrees of conflict between the parents is really, really damaging for them. And so then they start, as you say, to start parenting their parents and they become more aware sometimes of their parents' needs than their own. And then they're just not getting all that attention that is required in their developmental stage. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that kids um, can see their parents putting their own needs aside to some degree. Uh, that that's actually what kids need from their parents during a separation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it actually, it's, pro it's probably more potent than we, we realize yet. So if, if there was research studies out there or something that we continued on that, the ability, the psychological advantage of parents being able to put, especially conflict aside and the children seeing that, uh, I, I believe does, does wonders for the children in terms of them being and feeling valued. So which is what we're trying to do is validate children. So unfortunately, to be clear, people, people listening to this, there's two groups. There's general separating individuals who have the ability, generally regardless of how much they dislike the other parent, to not feel unsafe by the other parent. So we would categorize them as non-high conflict parents. So that recommendation for those parents is, is exactly what we're looking for and, and I think would provide leaps and bounds for your children in terms of them being able to accept the separation. For high conflict parents, that one unfortunately doesn't work because we have to expose ourselves to trusting the other parent to be able to regulate their emotions. So in terms of the high conflict piece, there is the high conflict parenting course. Um, and then, and then it's, it's impossible to answer here in five minutes, but there is more specialized type training and therapeutic intervention offered in Calgary, actually, through non, some nonprofit agencies or through private sort of individual therapy to be able to help people in the more, let's say, uh, dangerous situations or traumatic, possibly traumatic situations for them. So that often moves into what would, would be called litigation support. Mm -hmm. So the old adage, stay together for the sake of the children, is a really outdated sort of concept because we know that staying together for the children oftentimes leads to higher conflict in front of children and that that's clinically damaging for kids to live in a toxic kind of environment. Absolutely. And even, even in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder now, Depending on your perspective of it and sort of the, the paradigm that seems to exist for PTSD, we often worry about PTSD for our children and we, uh, we worry about it for victims of domestic violence. 
PTSD now in the new DSM-5 also has a cumulative component that doesn't have threat to integrity or, in, or, or immediate injury or death. There also is the witness of a traumatic situation over a cumulative amount of time. And there's more and more research that's being done in the development of the DS, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, but also uh, post-traumatic stress disorder treatment around this idea that a child, even if they don't witness a life-threatening event over and over and over and over again, if they witness some type of really high conflict situation where their cortisol levels spike and they're fearful and they have no one to be able to go to to be able to soothe them, then that will end up being traumatic for those children as well. So that can happen during the relationship, but also in transition times when the children get to see both parents together again. Do you have any advice for parents who are going through separation and divorce as it relates to their kids or their own self-care? The first advice would be that I don't think naive is a negative word. If you've never been through that experience before, then you need help somewhere. It doesn't have to be through a paid professional. It can be through anyone that you trust to be able to give you some kind of support to get through it. So often, we're human beings and we anticipate events. So we need to know what to anticipate. We need to know what the corners of the puzzle are before we can make any decisions on the inside. So to be able to get that information as soon as possible, which will be doing your own reading or blogs, please be careful, though, that anybody who has likely had a negative result or a negative experience in a separation, you'll likely be getting that color. Anybody who has a has had a positive result or, or been able to make changes and positive changes in their separation and now have a fairly positive outcome, you're likely getting those, those rose-colored sort of colors as well. You're welcome to use both or however your decision-making is, but front-loading all of the information as fast as possible is money spent in the back end. So for your children, it wouldn't be monetary, but is validation spent in the back end as well to be able to know you're making the correct decisions. So for the children, often parents will bring their kids in to get an assessment just to make sure that they're okay. It's not specifically needed. Most parents that I know or have seen really have excellent spidey senses about their kids. If there's conflict and a massive amount of conflict between the parents and the communication is terrible, that is one of the little amber flags that says, you know, maybe bring them in. Let's make sure that they're doing okay. So it isn't a bad idea to be able to introduce a child to an outside third-party professional so long as the parents have interviewed and agreed on that professional so that the, they know that the professional is trained in whatever it is that they're asking the, them to do and will make sure that they don't hold the child too long in therapeutic sessions to start to become boring or to start to make the therapeutic relationship something that the child doesn't like. What we're really trying to do is have an introduction, make sure the child's okay, Say, hey, you're welcome to come back anytime you want. And then the child knows that they always have a neutral third party that they know now, who's not a boogeyman, that they can go to whenever they want. The idea is not always to fix a child right away or, or that, to assume that there actually is a problem. What are some of the symptoms you would say parents should be on the lookout for during separation and divorce in their kids? The easiest one and the clearest one that creates the least amount of conflict often because it's an objective third party is talk to the teacher. If there's a teacher involved and your children are of that age, and most are, then that's the big piece. 
teachers tend to have kind of more more time with their children than we do. So um, they're a great resource. If there's any kind of guilt or shame involved in the family separating, that'll be a little bit more difficult because teachers actually are great advocate, advocates for the children when they know that there actually is a separation happening. So they have the ability to be able to make a whole bunch of different sort of uh, environments and a, and a bunch of different curriculums to be able to modify, to be able to help your children out. So teachers are great. If you find that there's a marked change in behavior, so a chatty child becomes really, really quiet, or a really quiet child just all of a sudden becomes, generally they'll end up becoming more aggressive, then that's probably an easy one that you'll know to have noted already and didn't really need the advice for. So for the under fives where the teachers aren't involved, you're looking for generally some kind of regression but it's much more difficult to qualify and quantify because those children will be worried about the transition and will react to the transition anyway of going back and forth. So there are childhood development specialists who are out there, but often the hallmark to know that your child isn't okay if, if they're five and under is take a look at the process that you're going through in terms of the separation and has it been over two years and is it a lot of conflict? If it's really high conflict, then you can likely assume your child's not doing very well. So in those younger ages, you might see them developmentally regressing things like if they were once uh, toilet trained, maybe they're not any longer. Those are the kinds of things you're talking about? Yeah, those are the classic examples. A lot of the times what I'll end up seeing is that uh, night terrors will come back. So we process things through our dreams. Uh, a massive amount of clinginess. The children's will, children will return back to one of the parents' beds, generally the nurturing parent, and that often creates conflict for the parents uh, because there should be there's a there's a piece or a sociological sort of assumption about children uh, moving into their own beds. But you'll see that happen, and I think another piece will actually be the children's bedtime. So you'll see their bedtime not only them returning back to bed, but in addition to the bedtime routine and the bedtime will start to disintegrate. So those would be pretty classic hallmarks to look for. Not only these pieces, but then the rest would be, if you see that happening, then either get some support through books or through any developmental specialist that you can find. I think one of the things I've noticed is um, I sometimes advise parents to take some notes and to keep track so that they can identify patterns of behavior and so that they can put certain dates like so when they come to see a psychologist and they say, you know, they've just not been themselves, and you would say, well, how long has that been going on? And I think in the midst of a lot of stress, adults don't necessarily have great reference points, and so they kind of base it on their own sense of stress. So sometimes if they can just write down details about, you know, when they first started noticing things or how long it's been going on, then when they approach a professional, then they have some really concrete information that might be really helpful. Absolutely. It helps us in terms of the assessment and maybe finding some sort of catalyst to the behavior or just just watching watching what has happened. It's especially helpful if both parents are noting there is an element of trust there to be able to not fall into the, well, it doesn't happen at my house behavior. But in terms of being, a, if I was the parenting coordinator and in terms of being able to mediate, if both parents were taking that information and both parents were giving me their signs and symptoms or what they noted was happening with the child, the interest there is that both parents are caring for the children and both parents are providing information that they believe is the best for the parents. That is a not a fairly easy one, but it's a, a quicker reframe 
for the parents to be able to get on board to whatever solution it is that they would like to jointly agree to, to be able to create some kind of intervention for the child, whether it be a intense intervention or just a, a light change of bedtime or, or a simple communication back and forth between the parents that's needed, depending on what the catalyst is. Mike, you've shared lots of really great information with us. Thank you so much for your time. Divorce and separation is an ideal time to reach out to a psychologist. The Holmes Rahe Life Stress Inventory, which is a social adjustment rating scale, notes divorce and separation rank second and third as the most stressful life events. The only greater readjustment is the death of a spouse. You do not need a referral from your doctor to see a psychologist. You can go to the Psychological Association of Alberta for a name of a psychologist in your city. In the event of a crisis, you can call the Distress Centre in Calgary at 403-266-HELP. That's 4357. If you experience a mental health emergency, call 911 or walk into an emergency room at your local hospital. Mental health is an important health issue. In addition to separation and divorce, we know that COVID-19 has negatively impacted children's mental health. The loss of playdates, soccer, sleepovers, and dating has isolated children and pushed them further towards their devices. Greater instances of depression, anxiety, irritability, attention span, hyperactivity, obsessions, and compulsions are all noted to have increased during COVID-19. Reach out early to get children services they need. There are specialists who can help. That's it for this edition of Family Law Matters. I'm Janine Crofton. Thanks for listening. Connect with us by emailing familylawmatters at info at resolveology.com. Ask us your questions about family law issues and look for our blog articles to address your pressing questions. Check out the other work we do at resolveology.com. You can follow us on Twitter at R-E-S-O-L-V-O-L-O-G-Y underscore Y-Y-C. Thank you to Meg Wilcox for her work on this podcast series. Thanks as well to Mike Dennis for his thoughts on resolving your family law issues. Be sure to subscribe to the rest of the series where you can gain insight from other professionals who assist families going through separation and divorce in Alberta.